This is Euroscopic, a podcast brief about what happened this week, how we got here, and where we're going. I'm William Bluecroft. And this is Martin Guck. You can find this podcast and other essays at our Substack, euroscopic.substack.com. And of course, you can subscribe wherever your ears go for podcasts. Like, comment, share, you know the drill. If you like it, let us know and a friend or two of yours as well. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, the 22nd of August. From donuts to, to lemon pasta, that's what I have to look forward to this week with you. That's true. I mean, I am, um, I'm promising something that uh, you have not quite um, tasted before. This is actually very traditional uh, of the Calabrian region because it's actually where most of the citrus is produced, sort of the better citrus in any case. Uh, but um, some or other American influencer who does food porn on Instagram, perhaps, uh, seems to have claimed um, ownership of lemon pasta. Sort of 200-year, 150-year dish uh, is now officially uh, an American Instagram sensation. Um, yes, but when it comes to Italian food, as you no doubt know, a lot of uh, what's considered to be staple Italian dishes were either imported or developed to suit the tastes of American GIs in Italy during and immediately after the war. Some of it is true, and I think that that depends where you find yourself. Um, there are a lot of sort of recipes. I mean, if you go to my neck of the woods in Puglia, uh, you will find a lot of stuff that uh, no American would touch, uh, even with a very, very long fork. So, for instance, donkey uh, is still being eaten. I have to say that I have found plenty of things in the U.S. Uh, that have uh, a name that was reminiscent of things that I have known, such as, say, apples or cucumbers. Uh, and then what I found was something that uh, did not, was not quite recognizable as such. Of course, you know, into that you have canned spaghetti uh, from Chef Boyardi. Um, you, say, you, 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 you give it a pronunciation that it doesn't deserve. You give it such a sophisticated, almost French-like pronunciation. It really doesn't I, deserve... I lived in the U.S. for 20 years. I'm still trying to save it from itself. All right. So um, enough about keeping our bellies full. Martin and I could probably do an entire podcast just on food. Um, but this week, we are looking at a number of stories. We'll get to the quirky ones in just a second or the small ones. Of course, we have BRICS meeting this week. That's Brazil, India, Russia. Uh, I, think I, I think I said it out of order. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, BRICS and the many, many other countries that would like to join BRICS, although what joining actually means is another story. We've got uh, a winter coming, the European Union looking at its uh, energy supplies for the winter. And of course, we really wanna look at this controversy about whether Germany is or is not, once again, the sick man, so-called sick man of Europe, uh, as economic data uh, might suggest. Uh, but let's first turn to some of the smaller, the weirder, but still fun and interesting stories. Martin, what struck you? So I think that the most colorful one this week is the Russians, uh, after having crashed uh, into Ukraine, now crashing into the moon, um, you know, excusing themselves to some degree uh, and, you know, showing, showing their technological might and uh, technical skills under a not so positive light, perhaps. What I found very interesting, first of all, given the amount of 
disinformation and misinformation that Russia is so good at. I'm actually quite surprised that we know that it crashed. I'm surprised they didn't try to spin it in any kind of way or somehow make us believe something that wasn't true, that, you know, they launched this mission to the moon and it didn't work. They lost, I think they lost communication with it or there was a technical glitch and it slammed into the side of the moon. And we know about it. That to me is the newsworthy item. We actually know that it failed. It's so fascinating to me that the technology is there. We know how to do this, right? The math is there. When when the when the Apollo mission was launched in the 1960s, NASA and its scientists literally had to create new math. They literally had to use math that had never been used before. And it worked, obviously, with lots of money being poured in to make sure it would work. And now the math is there, but we know how to do it. And yet countries around the world still are having trouble doing a very, by space exploration standards, uh, which is a very high standard, but not really successfully being able to do this. And then another story that actually did catch my attention this week was a couple, uh, an old couple that actually was was charged uh, 110 euros uh, to board a Ryanair um, airplane because they had not printed their boarding cards in advance. Uh, Ryanair is, generally speaking, um, kind of the bottom of the pile for both prices and quality um, in sort of European European internal travel. Uh, but they also are actually very well known for an enormous, endless amount of surcharges uh, that come in all sorts of forms. One of these things is, um, you know, getting your printing your boarding cards, which is a three minute thing. So this old couple came into the airport they did not have them they were charged an old couple were was charged 110 pounds for not printing out their tickets for ryanair which honestly as as egregious as that is anyone flying ryanair should know what they're in for i mean it is literally a flying bus if it wasn't for Sorry. EU regulations they would charge for you to use the the toilet in flight the, i believe even once they tried to apply for a permit to allow people to stand not even give them seats Indeed. Um, literally to make literally to make Ryanair, if that were ever to somehow pass muster with safety regulators, which of course it wouldn't, um, then Ryanair literally would be a flying bus. Maybe consumers should just stop flying Ryanair. So the UK and Italy and Japan uh, are, have a joint project for the development of a fighter jet. And guess who was trying to make it into that uh, group? Saudi Arabia, um, who have been really trying to come into the fold, show themselves in the international context as not the people that actually ordered the killing and grinding of the flesh of uh, a journalist in one of their embassies in Europe. No, actually, you know, good members of the international community capable of actually supporting the development of, uh, you know, the tools needed to defend democracies. Turns out, we found out yesterday or the day before from Human Rights Watch that uh, it seems that Saudi Arabian uh, border guards had been engaged in the pretty much wholesale massacre of um, African immigrants trying to get from Yemen into the kingdom. Uh, and it seems, the story goes, that the numbers are in the hundreds. I think that it's very clear that Saudi Arabia in its current condition cannot be brought into the fold. This is not a friend of democracy. And this is probably not somebody that you want as a Trojan horse or a fifth column 
sitting inside the defense machine of Western Europe. Well, of course, it would also be nothing new for uh, you know democracies and freedom-loving countries to be in bed with some unsavory characters. I think Freedom House's uh, latest, uh, one of their latest statistics is something like 30 out of 50 uh, governments that it considers dictatorships, the U.S. supplies you know military aid to. And I think I think to this point, that is a perfect transition into one of the bigger stories this week. Uh, which is the BRICS meeting happening in South Africa as we speak, as we record right now. It's the first day of the BRICS, the, the first official day of the BRICS meeting. This is the summit of the leaders of these five countries, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, South Africa, which is kind of ironic because BRICS in its very, very basic form is an acronym that springs out of the imagination of the US world order and the US global financial system. It was this idea of being able to profit, invest in and profit from these so-called emerging markets. And these five countries 20, almost 30 years ago were identified by Goldman Sachs, which is sort of the kingpin of American global financial dominance as the next big thing for global, for American led global financial dominance to profit from. And now of course, BRICS, has become an entity unto itself to try to break away from US-led global financial dominance. And that's what we're seeing today. And I mentioned Saudi Arabia being the perfect segue because Saudi Arabia is one of the many countries that would like to be added to this BRICS group. It's not really clear what it actually is. It's not an alliance, it's not a block, it's not a partnership. It's just kind of this loose affiliation of countries that vaguely share this idea that a world led a, a, a rebalanced world that's not so much under the thumb of the United States and Western powers would be a better world for them. You know, China would love to see a, a full breakaway from U.S. led power, U.S. led institutions. Russia, of course, we know would as well. Uh, but Brazil, India, South Africa, they're much, very much on the fence. They are in by no means ex explicitly anti-American or anti-West. They're trying to have their cake and eat it too. And someone and a country like Saudi Arabia is as well. As you mentioned, they want to do partnerships in building fighter jets with the UK, Italy, and Japan. But at the same time, they want to join this ostensibly anti-Western coalition of the BRICS. These countries, particularly, I mean, Russia, uh, in, under the massive economic pressure that it got brought on itself by invading Ukraine, China now in a major, what seems to be a major deflationary, uh, deflationary slide, which has actually really impacted uh, consumption and really impacted the economy, and it seems to be actually accelerating. Uh, Brazil in a state of semi-stagnation, which is really sort of cyclical. Um, you know, it's something that really makes it sound a bit more like sort of the, the League of the Angry, uh, more so than really a very clear project. You know, Saudi Arabia being a leader in OPEC, they don't call an OPEC a cartel for nothing when it comes to controlling prices and controlling supply. And we're at the point now of coming to the end of the summer where much as we saw uh, last winter, getting very nervous about energy supplies for the winter months. The EU is very proud of itself for having fulfilled its its internal requirement for having gas supplies uh, at 90% or better, uh, beating that that deadline two months early. I think it's November 1st. The EU said that its member states had to have 90% or better gas reserves ready for the winter, and they've met that. Um, 
we remember last year, a lot of people were just focused on the winter ahead. But of course, the, the smart money, the people in the industry were saying, well, great, you might get through 2022, 2023, but what about 23, 24 and 24, 25? I mean, the war in Ukraine is not going to end, even if it does end anytime soon. The, the chance of things going back to status quo with Russia being a, shall we say, normal supplier in the gas market is not, we're done with that. We're in a new world. There's only so much gas to go around. We know uh, about some unsavory deals the EU made with uh, gas suppliers around the world, like Azerbaijan, for example. Uh, if the EU has lots of gas, then that can, it's kind of a zero sum game. It means other places are not having gas and what the political blowback might be uh, is something definitely to watch. Sort of the lack of resources on the other hand is the fact that resources have become, even when available, have become a lot more expensive. So obviously, if you are in South America, if you're in Africa, if you're in more impoverished countries in Asia, this becomes actually quite immediately an issue. I mean, Germany needs for all of its talk about climate change and environmentalism is a massive consumer of natural gas, uh, among other fossil fuels. And that brings up our big story, which is the question of Germany's economic stability and what that means for Europe. Uh, what we see is that many of the things that in my mind are really the direct product of some of the policies that Merkel and particularly Schäuble, her finance minister, had, uh, well, are coming to, you know, bear bitter fruit uh, and affect essentially the economy, but of course that has sort of a knockoff effect uh, on various different areas, including, of course, politics, social policy, European policy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, as you so as you say, The Economist, everyone's favorite uh, ivory tower liberal magazine, uh, business friendly magazine out of the UK, takes credit for coining the sick man of Europe term about Germany in the 1990s, because after Germany, uh, as the traditional narrative goes, reunified between West and East, questionable if it was really a reunification, but we'll go with that traditional narrative. Um, of course, there was a huge amount of investment and money required to bring the former communist East up to a Western standard um, and pumping a lot of money into it. And Germany took a, uh, an appropriate economic hit from that. Um, and German, Ger the German economic engine slowed in the 90s. And that's where the sick man of Europe kind of uh, idea came, came into play. And this term is being floated again. It was on the cover of a recent economist, had a lot of play in the social media world where these where people who spend much too much time on social media uh, went back and forth on whether that was a fair characterization of Germany at the moment or not. I would like to bring in another trope. We have the sick man of Europe idea on one hand, and then we have the famous quote from the English uh, football trainer, soccer to my American friends, uh, from uh, many years ago about England playing Germany in soccer or football, uh, which is basically uh, football is, a, if I'm paraphrasing the quote, uh, the game is about two teams of 11 men play around on the field for 90 minutes. And at the end of the at the end of 90 minutes, Germany wins. So you don't see it as the sick man of Europe? I don't know. I mean, this, this is the question. This is the dichotomy for me. Sick man of Europe on one hand ends up winning no matter what on the other hand. I mean, we saw, for example, Germany, we know, is very tight fisted with its finances, as you rightly pointed out. The Schäuble years, which have sort of been picked up again with the uh, Free Democrat uh, liberal party controlling the finance ministry, not wanting to spend money on anything really that isn't, you know, tax breaks and and support for uh, for German industry. Um, 
has nonetheless suffered from that lack of investment. And we are seeing a slowdown in the German economy, slower than, I mean, the EU's economy overall is suffering, especially if you compare it to the United States. Its, its growth is, is atrocious. Germany is also not looking great. Uh, we have to remember that a recession is a very technical term. It doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to start losing their jobs, that companies are going to have to start cutting left and right. You know, in my mind, I mean, the question in the end is always political. As it happens in places like Saxony or Mecklenburg-Vorpommern or, or, you know, impoverished areas of, of Germany, uh, I think that this becomes a much, much more dangerous uh, issue. It would be politically extremely, extremely unfortunate if we were to find ourselves uh, in front of a large segment of the electorate that cannot pay for food uh, in a country where the state is already in many parts absent, where it has not been absent before, and where you know the infrastructure is absent in places where it has not been before. So a lot of the destabilization of the political system in Germany, a lot of the emergence of this really ugly, almost pre-war far right has to go for the absolutely miserable policy of austerity that has been first imposed by Schäuble and now basically continued by by in the finance in the finance ministry. I right. mean, essentially, Lindner, who, who, who most recently got into some hot water by by saying that basically the only kids who are poor in Germany are those who are Im immigrants or, or, or children of immigrants. For the sure. austerity, the austerity has created division and conflict between the native born population, the, 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 the majority population and incoming populations for absolutely no reason. I, I absolutely because agree with you. This perception, because you can, you can fully understand why someone might be looking at the news in a place where there's not a lot of infrastructure, where they're having trouble making ends meet and things have been cut and austerity has, has cut programs. And then suddenly there's an emergency, some kind of crisis like uh, the like all the people that came in in 2015. And of course you have to provide money and resources for that. And the appearance is, regardless of the facts, it creates a perception that, wait, these people who don't pay taxes, who are just showing up here, suddenly have all this money and resources and services that I, as a voter, as a taxpayer, haven't had. And I don't think it's a matter of irresponsibility. I think it was really just full on a matter of complete stupidity. The, the biggest irony of Germany is that German, the German, German officialdom is so afraid of risk that they actually take on risk by being afraid of risk. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They're so afraid of spending money. Very they're good so point. afraid of investing in the services required that actually they create conflict and create crisis, maybe down the road, maybe at a time and place in, such as in Angela Merkel's case, where they don't have to deal with it anymore because they're out of office, but they're creating problems down the road that otherwise wouldn't exist because they're so afraid of risk, it actually becomes a riskier situation. That, to yeah. me, is one of the greatest ironies of German political thinking. When people talk about German quality, uh, I think that what they don't understand is that the underbelly of that is that your great-grandfather's horse cart is in such good conditions 200 years later, it's such great German quality that there is no real reasons to actually develop electric cars. Who needs electric cars when you can still use that thing with the horse, which is almost like you? And what this produces is actually a culture of stagnation. I think we can move into what's ahead. Uh, and this has been a story that is certainly not what's ahead, but there are still gonna be consequences from it is uh, Georgia Maloney's sticking to her guns with this Italy windfall bank tax. 
Uh, I know you you love and cherish all things Italian politics, Martin. I don't know if you can tell us anything about this, where it's moving forward. Well, I think that is a fascinating one because it's a massive whammy. I mean, it's not just a windfall tax. It's a 40% windfall tax. <laughs> so we're talking about a massive chunk of cash. Uh, and, you know, this is coming from um, a right-wing party. Let no one uh, confuse that with a capitalist uh, neoliberal party. This is quite clearly a corporativist, uh, statist, as they like to say, party, which is very much, very much uh, coherent with the history of Italian fascism. I mean, the inheritor of Italian fascism, which itself was, you know, born in the Socialist Party of Italy, was actually the Italian social movement. And their concern was indeed uh, you know, the social the social compact. So one of the things that you see with this tax is that essentially uh, comes down to really bread and circus, right? It's something that, of course, is a big chunk of cash, but at the same time, I mean, it's very likely that this money, I mean, and, and she has been criticized, although everything makes it look like she will go on with it. Uh, this is money that will be lost in the big scheme of Italian financial disorders. So it's not that the people will see it, but I think that there is really an inordinate appetite uh, to see banks uh, squeezed. And I think that she's doing it in a manner that helps her to cement her foothold uh, among what would have been hesitant left or semi-left wingers that already have some kind of liking for her over the last, uh, you know, couple of months. I mean, her popularity just continues to increase. I thought what was interesting um, was Ukraine putting a deal together with international insurers to a joint program with also with their state bank to basically cover the, the, the grain ships to get out of Ukraine. I find this so interesting exactly because it's on the surface so boring uh, we forget that lurking behind all of the stories is insurance, right? Nothing happens without insurance. World trade doesn't happen without insurance. Uh, this is one of the ways that U.S. sanctions have been able to stick against Russia, not so much the goods themselves that are being banned, uh, that are being sanctioned, and but insurance companies that need to be in the good graces and the good regulatory graces of the United States and of its Western allies um, won't insure the goods from Russia being exported. Uh, and, and it's one of those fascinating stories about how the world, I, I love these stories because it really, you realize that's how the world really works. Um, it's not about your iPhone, it's about the insurance company or the insurance company insuring the insurance company uh, for the boat that will, you know, load the phone from China onto it and then bring it around the world. And then the insurance company on that side, it's just, for me, that's very, very interesting. And that is how Ukraine is going to be getting it things. It's grain that some of these ships have been stuck in ports since the beginning of the war going on a year and a half are actually going to get it out. And it's it's so interesting that in, if you can get an insurance company to agree to to back you, it doesn't matter what mines might be in the water, doesn't matter what drones or missiles might be coming at you, that actually insurance companies can be more powerful than a physical weapon in front of you because if they'll cover you, you can set sail. So that's all I have for this week. On Thursday, I will have um, lemon pasta for you. That is the big story, the lemon pasta, which we will report to our Euroscopic audiences as soon as we can. 
You've been listening to Euroscopic with William Bluecroft and Martin Gack. Written by us, produced by us, and edited by me. If you liked what you heard, like us, subscribe to us, leave us a comment, tell us what you think, and share us with a friend. You can find us at Substack, that's euroscopic.substack.com, and our podcast, wherever podcasts are heard. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.